There are two dangers that we need to avoid as we evaluate our Christian lives. The first danger is thinking that we have arrived, that we have finally made it in our walk with God. Perhaps even thinking that we are perfect or sinless, that we are all that God wants us to be. Now that may sound odd, but there are groups that teach that very thing, that it's possible to achieve sinlessness in this life, to have a a spiritual perfection. They may encourage you to seek a second work of grace or to live on a higher plane or higher ground. Some of you are familiar with uh, Keswick Bible Conference. Uh, They would have that kind of, of teaching. If we think we've arrived or are perfect, then there is something seriously wrong with our understanding of what true holiness is. The second danger is in wanting to be perfect so badly that we become entrapped by those who hold out a false means to obtain spiritual perfection. The Judaizers portrayed themselves as having arrived spiritually and held out a false means by which spirituality could be obtained, namely through circumcision and obedience to various rituals and customs. The Judaizers preyed upon those who were seeking something more in their Christian life, those who were discontent with their spiritual attainments, those who were longing for a deeper relationship with God. I know as a young teen myself, I was really desirous of having a deeper, more intimate, more personal relationship with God and wondered about how that was to be achieved. And uh, I read a lot of different theological books with uh, very little discernment. I didn't know a whole lot, and I read from many different perspectives, not realizing it. And uh, I soon became disquieted as I read about people that said that they had obtained uh, sinlessness, that talked about intimacy with God as though God were speaking to them directly, as though there was some voice that they were hearing and leading them and directing them, and I felt tremendously left out. I felt uh, very discouraged in my Christian walk. What's wrong with me? And how do I ever, ever obtain that kind of intimacy with God? That he's going to speak to me in an audible voice directly. I was blessed when I was about 16 years of age, one of the things that I came upon to read was a little book by Harry Ironside. It was entitled, Holiness, the False, and the True. Holiness, the False, and the True by Harry Ironside. To me, it was a a wonderful revelation and breath of fresh air. For Harry Ironside had ministered with a group that taught that you could obtain sinless perfection. And Harry Ironside, it's actually a biographical study of his life, talks about how earnestly he sought this deeper, intimate, uh, personal relationship with God in which God was speaking to him. And he had a sense, uh, he actually would have a, a feeling of the very presence of God. And Harry Ironside had wanted that desperately. So desperately, in fact, that he went through an emotional breakdown. He just 
fell into great despondency, uh, became sick. And in the period and age in which he lived, there weren't a lot of counselors and there weren't a lot of programs or places that you could go with uh, such maladies. So he ended up going to a retirement home. Retirement home for his denomination. And uh, as he was in that retirement home and uh, seeking to recuperate and find his faith once again, it just so happened there was a missionary, a retired missionary that was there. One that uh, Harry Ironside had a great deal of respect for. Uh, one that uh, he admired, looked up to. I saw him as a very godly individual, appreciated his character and the manner in which he conducted himself. And uh, as Harry Ironside laid in his bed one night in this nursing home praying, he thought, if there's anyone who can tell me how to achieve this uh, deeper relationship with God, it's this man. And so he got up and got out of bed and was walking to this man's room. And as he was walking down the hall, he saw this man walking towards him. And Harry Ironside sighed. I said, I can't believe that I'm encountering you in the hallway. So I was just coming to your room to ask you how you obtained this deeper, intimate relationship with God. And this man said, I was just coming to ask you. And they both realized that that was a sham. That they had been promised something that, that wasn't available to them. Harry Ironside, though very godly, readily admitted that he was not sinless. Readily admitted that he had not been sinless. What was wrong, he wondered. Well, eventually he came to realize that there was nothing wrong with him at all. Spiritual perfection cannot be attained in this life, no matter what the claims of others are to the contrary. And we must be very, very sure about this, or we are going to become extremely disquieted and open to many deceptions and mistruths and people that would bring us into bondage in various ways. John Newton was a preacher, hymn writer, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, a former shipmaster of a slave ship, and God had done a wonderful work in John Newton's life in saving him, and many of you know the words to Amazing Grace. John Newton wrote these words. Again, I find them very helpful. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. However, I am not what I once was. And I am what I am by the grace of God. That is the proper perspective of the Christian life. That's what it looks like. So this morning, I want to look at this passage in greater detail, answering the question, what does true spirituality look like? What does true spirituality look like? Well, first, true spirituality realizes that we have not yet arrived. Paul had not yet arrived in his relationship to God, and neither have we. The Judaizers, as I said, had a false view of spirituality. While at first glance they might appear to be very spiritual because they are very religious, however, they are what is referred to later as enemies of the cross of Christ. Judaizers were people who were insisting that in addition to believing in Jesus, people had to adopt several other practices of Judaism, such as circumcision, 
if one was truly right with God. While Judaism may not, Judaizers may not be the issue of our day, there are still loads of people that would teach us that it's Jesus plus something that's needed for a true, intimate, and uh, personal relationship with God. The Judaizers were assisting that they had arrived spiritually, as did Paul before he was saved. Notice verse 6. As to zeal, persecuting the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, blameless, sinless. Before Paul was saved, he viewed himself as a sinless individual, for he had been taught the law in such a way that it could be kept, as many people do. Many people have this outward form of righteousness, whereas it consists of how long you, you wear your sleeves, the color of your clothes, uh, how long you wear your hair or don't wear your hair, or do you have facial hair or don't have facial hair, or do you drive a buggy or do you drive a car or do you drive a black car or whatever. And these things have nothing to do with the scripture. They have nothing to do with what true salvation is and true righteousness is, but it's easy to come up with a string of do's and don'ts that eventually you can feel pretty good about yourself because you don't do what the don't-do's tell you not to do, and you do-do what the do-do's tell you what to do, and so you're a pretty good person. However, Paul came to realize that that view was false. Verse 12, not that I've already attained this or already imperfect. Paul, after he was saved, realized that he wasn't perfect at all. In fact, it's after Paul say, is saved that he says that he is the chief of sinners. What an incredible transformation. Before he's saved, he thinks he's sinless. Now that he's saved, he says, I'm the chief of sinners. There is no one worse than I am, Paul says. And he really believed that because in his mind, one of the worst things he could have done was to persecute the church. One of the worst things he could have done was to try to oppose the cause of Christ, the very cause now that he is striving to disseminate but that wasn't always the case. And so Paul says that he was the chief of sinners. What had he not yet attained? What specifically is the this? For notice in verse 12 it says, not that I've already obtained this. What is the this? Well, if you look back, verse 11, he says that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, I've not yet been risen from the dead. Well, of course you haven't, Paul. Uh, you haven't died yet. But the point of Paul's statement is that he hasn't yet arrived because he hasn't risen from the dead yet. He's not perfect and won't be perfect until the resurrection, until he stands in the very presence of God. Then he's going to be perfect, and not before that. And not before that. Now, we believe in progressive sanctification, which means we can grow in holiness, we can grow in our relationship to God, but we can't be perfect in our relationship to God. Paul says that he is not completely, he has not yet come to know Christ fully. Let me say that again. He has not yet come to know Christ fully. Paul had come to know Christ through putting faith in Christ. Notice verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing, Je knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. 
the past things or the circumcision, the things we talked about last week, that the righteous things that he had done. He said they were worthless in coming to know Jesus Christ. That has only happened by faith. So he says, I've come to know Christ. Goes on to say in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, count them as rubbish, in order that I might gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that comes on faith. No longer looking to his own personal goodness, only to the righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ on a basis of faith. But notice verse 10. That I may know him. That I may know him. That's a future concept. Paul says, I've come to know him. But I don't yet really know him. There is still a long way for Paul to go. There is still a long development process in the life of the Apostle Paul. Now think for a moment. We're talking about the Apostle Paul. We're talking about the man who had numerous revelations. We're talking about the man who met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. We're talking about a man in whom God was at work. And yet, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Paul speaking. Now I know in part, but then I shall know him fully, just as also I am fully known. Paul says, I, I look in a, in, a, in a mirror dimly. Our mirrors are, are pretty good. Our mirrors are of glass today, and so we look in a, a mirror, and unfortunately we see what we really are. But in the New Testament era, mirrors weren't made out of glass, they were made out of polished metal. And uh, if you've ever looked at yourself, uh, you know, uh, in a piece of really shiny metal, uh, you can get a glimpse of yourself, but it's nothing like looking in our glass mirrors, okay? It's nothing like a full on-on picture of, you wouldn't want to try to comb your hair in an in a, uh, image in a uh, polished piece of, of metal. Paul says, I know in part, I know in part, longing for that day, in which I fully know. Okay. Paul has not yet fully achieved the selfishness that is in keeping with the attitude of Christ and his death. Notice 3.10. That I may know him, the power of his resurrection. We'll only know that power when we are in fact raised from the dead. All these spiritual benefits. Uh, Ephesians says we are blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. Most of our spiritual blessings are yet future. And certainly that whole aspect of knowing Christ. John 17, 3. This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. You know what the Bible says we're going to be doing all eternity? Is getting to know God better. This is eternal life, that you might know him. That we're going to have the privilege of learning and understanding who God is. God is infinite. 
We will always be finite. We will never, ever completely know God to the same degree. It's a comparative in 1 Corinthians. We are never going to know him to the same degree that he knows us. He is exhaustive. We are not. He can know us exhaustively. We can never know him exhaustively. But we will grow, even in eternity. We will grow in our understanding of who God is. We will continually learn more and more and more about God. But there's going to be a huge, huge transformation of our thinking, a huge transformation of our experience when we stand before him. When faith becomes sight, when we come to experience these truths, Though Paul had sacrificed in many ways, he still had not yet experienced death and the resurrection. Paul had not yet fully accomplished the purpose for which he had been saved. Notice Philippians 3.12. Not that I've already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Philippians 3.12, according to the NAS, not that I've already obtained it or I've already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. That's a little more literal translation, and even that isn't completely literal. For it's hard to put into just a few words. The idea here. is that God arrested Paul on the road to Damascus. He, he grabbed a hold of Paul and stopped him. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Paul is on the road to Damascus, headed to persecute Christians. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. Paul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly light from heaven shone round him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting him. Who you are persecuting. And so God arrested Paul. God stopped Paul in his tracks on that day. And God reveals to Ananias what God's purpose is for Paul. Look at verse 15. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Paul had been chosen by God to take the name of God to the Gentiles and to the kings. Paul says, I haven't yet fully done all that. 
Now he's working on it. <laughs> he's ministering. And Paul says to the Philippians that he expects to come to them. Why? Because the ministry isn't over yet. We saw that a number of weeks ago. Paul says, I still haven't achieved this purpose for which God has, has yet saved me. My, my life is not over. My life is not over. Number two, Paul is not discouraged that he has not yet fully arrived in his walk with the Lord. Though he has not attained these things, he is filled with hope. Notice verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what is ahead. NAS. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but the one thing I do. I really appreciate that transition with the yet in it. Paul realizes that he's not all that he ought to be. And he realizes that he's not all that God had called him to be. But yet, he says, in contrast to that, realizing that, he says, I do one thing. Paul overcomes discouragement or apathy by first not dwelling on the past. He says, forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting what lies behind. Forgetting two things. First, forgetting all the wrongs that he had done, all the sins that he had committed, all the failures that he had established. He just doesn't let that totally discourage him, but he continues on in his relationship with God. And we said he was a persecutor of the church. He doesn't let that stop him. But there's one here that's even more powerful. And that is forgetting his circumcision. Forgetting his, his goodness under the law. Forgetting all the quote-unquote righteousness that the Judaizers were talking about. He says, putting all that behind me. That, that means nothing in this pursuit of God. I haven't attained. I haven't achieved. I put that behind me. Okay? I don't look at my personal righteousness. I don't look at my personal goodness. I don't go there anymore. Forgetting what lies behind and straining for what lies ahead. Paul works hard at his spiritual progress. Paul wants to reach for what is presently outside of his grasp. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. Straining forward to what lies ahead. Now he uses two metaphors uh, in the original that are a little tough to see, but uh, these are two metaphors. The first is found in the words straining forward. It's actually a term that would be used of a police officer trying to chase down a thief in order to lay hold of him. You know, just imagine. You know, you've seen the movies where a police officer is in hot pursuit of a thief on foot, and they're running. And just imagine that thief just being a little farther ahead of the policeman. And so he's running after, trying to get a hold of that thief. And he's reaching, and he's, he's straining, and trying to get him, but he's just, just out of his reach. He just can't 
can't seem to get a hold of him. And so he runs harder and harder and faster and faster, and the thief runs faster and faster, and he's just outside his grasp. As opposed to the imagery where God laid hold of Paul on the road to Damascus. God had him firmly in his hand. He was in his grasp. He was arrested. He was brought under the authority of God. But now Paul says, now I'm really, really wrestling, not with a thief. I'm wrestling with righteousness. I'm trying harder and harder to be the person that I ought to be and is just outside my grasp. I just can't get a hold of it. It's beyond me. Verse 14 is an athletic metaphor. Paul now perseveres in his pursuit of spiritual maturity. For it says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I press on toward the goal, the goal, that time that I will be with Jesus. And this pressing on is the aspect of perseverance. This Christian life is not a sprint. This chasing after righteousness is not for a minute or two. It's for a lifetime. And that runner who has a goal, who sees the finish line, keeps pushing on, okay? And if you're a distance runner, you know about the side stitches. You know about the knee, the shin splints, the pains that come through continuing to run, but you gotta push through. You gotta keep working. You gotta keep at it. You keep running, knowing that there's an end in sight. And that end in sight in the text is the upward call. It's being with Jesus. Then perfection comes. Then that intimacy that we so long for is going to be realized. Then we will see him. Then we will know him. But in this life we're pursuing. We're pursuing. We're pursuing. Now the key is, well, how do you pursue? How do you grow? How do you get closer? How do you develop this intimate, personal relationship with God? How does Paul go about working hard to obtain spiritual attainment? What does that, writing, what does that running look like? How does one reach out and try to grasp? What practically does that mean for us day to day in our living? Well, first, Paul is describing what true spiritual progress is. He says in verse 15, let those who are mature think this way. Some of you have the translation, let those who are perfect think this way. Okay? You want to know what spiritual maturity is? You want to know what perfection is? View it this way. View it as an endless pursuit until you are with God. 
That's the right view. Don't think that you can attain it in this life. Don't think that you're going to have that intimacy in this life, like you're going to have in the life to come. That those who are spiritually mature think this way. In other words, if you don't think that way, you're not spiritually mature. No matter how mature you think you are, or no matter how righteous someone looks, no matter how dedicated they seem, no matter how zealous they are, no matter how much they pray, no matter how much they mutilate their flesh or do all the things the Judaizers did, don't be deceived by it. True spirituality is a recognition that we have a long way to go. In fact, in fact, the closer you draw to God, the more you realize, I have a long way to go. The more you realize that, that sin is about my heart. It's not about these outward acts. The outward acts are just an expression of, a, of an inward problem. And, you know, we can maybe get rid of some outward acts and feel pretty good about ourselves because we haven't committed adultery. But then Jesus comes along and says, if you lust in your heart, you've committed adultery already. And then you realize, man, man, the heart. How do you change the heart? The more we grow spiritually, the more we realize what Paul said on the chief of sinners. If anyone disagrees with what Paul is saying is true spiritual progress, one day they will understand, verse 16. Let us hope that those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. <laughs> uh, you're going to come to know the truth. All right? You're going to stand before him one day, and uh, you're going to understand what true righteousness is and what it isn't. So then he says in verse 15, Let us therefore, as many as are perfect... Have this attitude, okay? If you want to be spiritually mature, then adopt this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you also. If not before, surely at the resurrection they will understand. But the way to spiritual maturity or perfection is not by works, but by faith. Paul is not going to make the mistake of trying to rely on his own personal goodness or righteousness in drawing closer to God. He's not going to rely on himself but the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 16. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. NAS. Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have obtained. What's he talking about? Paul says we have a standard. We have a way by which we live. Don't depart from it. Don't give it up. Maintain that standard. The standard's in verse 9. To be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. The way you draw closer to God is by faith. In Jesus Christ. And your confidence is solely in him not in yourself. It's not in your transformation. It's not in your good deeds. It's not what you give up. It's solely in Christ. We come to God placing our faith in Christ. The striving is in faith. It's not in our performance. 
That's why Paul says in Philippians, he begins with the aspect that we are confident, knowing that he who hath begun a good work in us will perform it to the day of Christ. He began a good work. He will complete it in the day of Christ. Turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians is a much fuller rendition of this discussion. Paul just kind of touches on it here. He really goes into much greater depth in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3 verse 1. The Galatians are really caught up with these Judaizers. So Paul addresses it. Galatians 3.1 he says this. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has brought you under their spell? Why in the world, Galatians, do you listen to this garbage? Okay? Who has taken control of your mind? Who has, as I say, brought you under your spell? Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You have started your relationship with God by faith. Your works were meaningless. I think most of us get that. Most of us get that. For by grace you saved through faith, not, not of yourselves, of gift, gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Guess what? They stay filthy rags. Our righteousnesses before we're saved and after we're saved. Okay? We never merit our relationship with God. We are saved by grace from beginning to end. It doesn't change after we're saved. Our relationship to God is always totally on the basis of grace. Don't try to perfect yourself through obedience to the law. That didn't save you, nor does it make you perfect. Perfection will only come by the power of God. And we should understand that for when are we perfect? When we stand in his presence. When he does a transforming work in our lives. It isn't something that we'll perform at that moment. It will be because he raised us from the dead and has imparted a deeper, fuller, intimate knowledge and relationship to God. And then I will have arrived because I will be at my destination, which is glory. Romans 8, being justified and ultimately being glorified. So what is true spirituality? True spirituality is the hungry and thirsting. It's the desire. It's that longing. It's the recognition that I have not yet arrived. And I would like to go much deeper, much fuller in my relationship with God. And that's a great thing. The Bible says, blessed are they who do hunger and thirst after righteousness. 
for they shall be satisfied. Not in this life, but life to come. But the progress is worthwhile. The, the process is worthwhile. But as you hunger and thirst, may it not be in transformation, but may it be in faith. Okay? May it be as we seek God. Lord, subdue this wicked spirit within me. Overcome my desires, my, temp my temptations, my lusts. Acknowledge our sin. C admit to ourselves our shortcomings. And the problem is in here. Lord, I'd love to be free from sin, but the problem's me. I love things I shouldn't love. I get caught up with things that shouldn't bother me. I'm so weak. I make resolves. I make commitments. I don't follow through on. I see within me no good thing. Help me, Lord. Help me. And that help is not just once and done. That help is of constant pleading with God day by day. I'm chasing. I'm pursuing. I want that righteousness, but it's just outside my grasp. But Lord, never, ever let me give up the chase. Let me never, ever give up the desire. And in that great desire, don't get taken in by somebody who's got this incredible spiritual sport, uh, shortcut. That all you have to do is X, Y, and Z, and now you're going to be perfect. Or now you're going to have this incredibly intimate personal relationship with God. No, there's no shortcut. The pursuit is by faith. It's reading the scriptures, asking God to speak to you through his word, asking God to reveal himself in his word. It's by asking God to subdue your, your spirit, your temptations, your weaknesses, fortify you with the spirit. So Galatians, that great book that deals with us in such length, and Galatians 5 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, faithness, meekness, temperance. And then the next statement is so important. Against such there is no law. Meaning, you just can't, you just can't resolve yourself to do this. It's not just a new resolution. It's not just a new commitment. You, you, you just can't do it on your own. It isn't just one more time going forward. It is a life of depending upon the Spirit of God for the forgiveness of sins that we have and will commit. Of imploring God to help us overcome that sinful nature that is so present with us. It's a longing. Oh Lord, what, what, what a glory it's going to be to be in the presence of God without sin. You know why there's no more tears, there's no more sorrow? Because there's no more sin. Nothing to regret. Nothing to be shamed about.
No hindrances in our relationship with each other or with God. We're going to be sinless. Oh, what a joy and delight that's going to be. The closer we can get that to this life, the closer we are to heaven. But we're never going to be there until that day that we experience the resurrection and stand in his presence. And there is no shortcut. But the way we pursue it is not by personal transformation or reform. It's through faith in Christ, through prayer and the reading of the word and asking the spirit of God to control us and transform us and make us anew. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Lord, we do long. We do long for a more intimate relationship with you. We, we do long to have some kind of sensual relationship with you. We, we'd love to be able to touch you or taste you or, or feel you or, or to be aware of your presence in some way other than faith. And Lord, there are people out there that promise us that. And there are people out there that tell us that, that we can have such things, but they are deceivers and they are being deceived, the scripture says. And ultimately in this passage, we're going to learn that they're enemies of the cross of Christ. So Lord, help us not to be content, but help us not to be discouraged in our walk. Help us to say with John Newton that we're not what we would want to be. We are not what we ought to be. We are not what we hope to be, but we are grateful that we are what we once were not. Lord, help us to see the spiritual progress. But like Paul, let us put that behind us and not be satisfied with it nor to be discouraged by it. But let us reach out. Let us run down righteousness, though it's just outside of our grasp. Uh, Lord, help us to pray. Help us to read. Help us to meditate. Help us to look to Christ and to long for that day in which we will stand before you truly sinless, faultless, blameless before your eyes and rejoicing in our relationship with you and one another. Until that day, help us to pursue. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What are we seeing in the other? I'm dying no Lord. One of the thousand, thousands of hymns that Fanny Crosby wrote was the song that we're going to sing in closing this morning, number 354, I Am Thine, O Lord. And her prayer, uh, her passion in her own life was that she would draw nearer to the Lord. She was never satisfied with what she had accomplished, but always longing to please the Lord, honor him, and grow in her faith and relationship to him. Let's stand as